Hi, welcome. This is the Workplace Suicide Prevention Podcast of the International Association of Suicide Prevention. I'm your host, Sally Spencer-Thomas, and I'm so grateful you're here to lean into this conversation. You are going to love this episode. I interviewed Jorgen Galustrup and Professor Sarah Waters about work-related suicide, why it's important, why we need to define it, how do we measure it, and who else needs to be involved. Come, take a listen. Hello and welcome everyone to the Workplace Suicide Prevention Podcast, hosted by the International Association of Suicide Prevention's Workplace Special Interest Group. Our goal here is to share with the world best practices, innovative approaches, emerging research findings, policies, and lessons learned to help engage our workplaces in suicide prevention, intervention, and postvention. I'm your host, Sally Spencer-Thomas. I am a psychologist and a suicide prevention advocate out of Colorado in the United States. And it is my pleasure today to host a podcast talking about work-related suicide. Work-related suicide is our topic today, and it's really a great paradigm shift from how we have often thought of suicide prevention in the workplace, which is having the workplace be a venue or a conduit to education and resources. This is kind of a different shift that you'll learn about today. And we have two amazing guests, Professor Sarah Waters and Jorgen Galustrup. This is an international conversation, and I'm really excited to get going. Let's start with you, Sarah. Give us a little bit of a background. How did you stumble into this work? What do you do today, and where are you located? Okay, thank you very much, Sally. An absolute pleasure to be here and to talk to you and to uh, Jorgen. I'm Professor of French Studies at the University of Leeds, which is in the north of England in, in the UK. And I came into this field really because I've been working on French labour studies for, for many, many years so my research is focused for you know nearly two decades on the French workplace. Then in the summer of 2009, the French media began reporting about suicides at France Telecom, this giant uh, telecommunications company, the third largest employer in France. And I was, I have to say, I was completely taken aback by this. And I, I was horrified because it went against everything I had learned about work and about the meaning of work. Work is a place that brings you into society. It gives you meaning, purpose, identity. How could things possibly get so bad that someone would want to take their own lives because of their experiences in work? So that really was the catalyst for me that that, that sent me on this sort of research journey, wanting to find out more about work-related suicide, its causes, its contexts in France and elsewhere. Yeah, excellent. So the idea of work being maybe both a protective factor or something gives us meaning and purpose and connection in life, you know, going all the way back to the early thoughts uh, from Durkheim about this role of work in our lives, but can also be a contributor to despair and loneliness and disconnection and all of that. Excellent. And and how about you, Jorgen? How are you connected to this conversation? I've been involved in a program called Mates in Construction for a number of years, and and I'm coming into that myself as a construction worker, myself from my own lived experience of suicidality. But in the Mates in Construction program, again, we were focusing on the workplace as a venue, but we also used the idea of safety as a way of promoting businesses taking upon uh, upon the program. So we built it into safety paradigms, and, and, and that way we got it into the risk management 
processes of the businesses and therefore the program became business as usual within the industry. So from that point of view, we were sort of looking at it as suicide in the workplace from two angles, the venue, as you, you rightly point out, Sally, but also using the fact that worker employers have a duty of care to provide a safe work environment and a safe workplace. And that could actually be leveraged to provide more venues for suicide prevention. And then in 2018, I was fortunate enough to get what was called a Churchill Fellowship to travel the world and investigate workplace suicide and mental health programs in the workplace. And through that, I stumbled across some of Sarah's work and some of the work that came out of French Telecom. And it it really blew my mind. It changed. It made me change my itinerary and suddenly compress everything else so I could go to Paris and, and investigate and find out some of these things that happened in uh, in French Telecom. And, and, and it was really mind-blowing. And I, and I thought, we're not doing this right. We're not doing the whole psychosocial discussion in the workplaces right if we don't acknowledge that just like physical hazards at work in some cases can be fatal, so can psychosocial hazards in the workplace if they're not addressed. That's now overlapping. I've always I've been, an, I've been a union official for many years before I got into suicide prevention, chair of the Work Health and Safety Board in Queensland now, which means that I'm, I've still got an overlap with work set health and safety. So these kind of things together sort of is coming together for me as well. Mm, excellent. So a lot of want to follow up with there as well. So I first want to touch on, you alluded to that you come to this from kind of your history and program development with mates, but that was also preceded by your lived experience. Does your lived experience tie into this passion for work-related suicide? I think for myself, like the time I didn't ever become intensely suicidal, but I had a lot of despair and disabling depression that was almost entirely related to a work failure. So it wasn't necessarily a workplace's fault, but it was a situation that was very much tied to my identity at work, my sense of failure from work, and it had a massive impact on my well-being. Was your lived experience also tied to workplace factors? I probably have to be honest and say no. It was, okay. it was quite a different experience. It was almost an opposite experience for me, but as a union official, I saw it. But from my own lived experience, I actually, I was quite young. I got into career, a career I really wanted to be in. I was at a place I really wanted to be where I felt valued and all that. And and other factors got me into that place. And my workplace was actually quite instrumental in, 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 term, in terms of supporting me and getting my through my through my apprenticeship and and my like my boss had no clue about mental health like he described mm-hmm. as having worms in your head but nevertheless I would turn up in his office every morning to have an assessment done to see whether I could face customers or whether I had to work in the workshop and that's not what plumbing plumbing people normally do so I think if I have to be on like it'd be a nice little narrative to say that was my experience as well but it's not my experience was actually my workplace was quite supportive my mental health came from from other things I don't even know today where it came from it just came but I certainly have seen lots of relationships as a union official where the work environment have been so significant for people that that suicide was one of the issues Ah, got it. Yes. And then, you know, you you alluded to learning about Sarah's work and kind of having this aha moment. Well, the same thing was true for me, Professor Waters. I remember reading your papers and going, oh, we're doing this wrong or we're missing a big, big piece. And I, there was this one line, and I'm not going to get it right. You're going to probably remember how you said it, but there was this one line in one of your papers that said the overemphasis on workplace on getting, you know, quote unquote, troubled people to counselors is a deflection away from their part of the responsibility to this despair and distress 
it was something like that. And I'm like, she's right. Oh my gosh. We've got to shift a little bit here so that we don't miss this. Do you remember what you actually said, Sarah, in that paper? Something like that. I'm close. Not exactly. Yes. Yes. I I can't remember the exact. Deflection was a verb. I remember that. Yes. Like it's those troubled workers. Oh, it's, they're just so troubled. So sad for them. We got to get them help. (laughs) Yes. And it's deflection in the sense that the sort of underlying problems aren't always addressed. It's a way of saying, well, we'll introduce therapy, we'll introduce counselling, yoga, and that, that that's actually what happened in some of the companies that I looked at. They did introduce those therapeutic measures, and yet the, the sort of underlying structural causes which were making people so distressed and and so stressed weren't addressed and so those measures were a deflection from from the real causes and some of the workers we we spoke to felt you know they understood that and they felt sort of patronized and they felt that this was was dishonest and i'm not sort of opposed to therapeutic methods i think they can be very helpful but i think you have to honestly confront the issues as well if people are being pushed to work all hours if their workloads are unmanageable if there is unbearable stress then all the yoga in the world isn't going to help you that's right that's right and if you put all the onus on the individual then the workplace has no accountability so they don't they won't even look because it's just those unwell people what we're seeing in the mental health field at the moment is stock standards. What we've seen with so many other safety issues in the workplace in the past is when a safety issue is raised, we deflect it back on the workers. It's about the careless worker. It's about the weak worker. It's about like it, like even like the number of times we talk about asbestos. But when we talk about asbestos, we also talk about all people are exposed to asbestos. But when the smoke then it becomes much worse and the risk becomes much higher. We don't actually say about when people smoke and then they get exposed to asbestos, they're much more likely to get lung cancer. It's always the things that workers do that make things worse. And therefore, we have to share the responsibility for the things that people are exposed to. And of course, counseling is a great thing. Of course, support is a great thing. Like therapy is a great thing. Yoga is a great thing. Football is amazing. But it's just, if you live in a sewer, you're just not going to get clean, are you? Oh, that's a great way to put it. That's a great way to put it. So the other thing, Jorgen, that you alluded to is that we are compiling a team. And I am so excited about this team coming from the special interest group from the International Association of Suicide Prevention, because everybody's kind of bringing this lane of expertise that together we're going to have such a ripple effect. And we're inviting all of our special interest group members to be a part of this. So we've got research folks, we've got you know people with labor advocacy history and case studies and all kinds of things. And this is we have an opportunity to make a real difference. So there's going to be a series of these podcasts coming out with these different perspectives and lanes of working on this that you'll hear over you know the next several months. And we're just really excited to, to start to coalesce these ideas about work-related suicide and, and bring to you the things that we're learning and invite you on along the journey. Let's go to this first big question, which is both simple and complex. What do we mean when we say work-related suicide? How are we defining it? And and Jorgen, I'll go back to you. How do you define work-related suicide? It, it is a difficult thing in some ways, and it's a very simple way thing in another way. A work-related suicide is a suicide where work was either a factor or a significant factor in the person's decision to try to take their own life. 
So at that level, I think it's simple. <laughs> Where it becomes complicated and complex is to say, how do we actually know that that happened? And so in, in some ways, that's where we sort of have to have, we know what the thing is. I think I don't think that too many people would dispute that too widely, that we could sort of talk about it around the nuances. But it's much more about saying, what is actually the red flag that says that this is something that needs to be investigated as a work-related issue? And that becomes a little bit more complex because now we're trying to get into the mind of somebody we can't ask. We have a model for this for like a safety incident on a job, when does it become investigatable? You know, it has to reach a certain threshold of a thing, but it's something often that we can see. We can see that somebody fell into a hole (laughs) or whatever. Like we know that something happened where it's a little more subtle on the emotional damage end of things. And so so the details are probably much rather want to lead to Sarah because Sarah's over there, like the back of her hand in terms of what's happened at different places. But I do want to say is that just because it's hard doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. And one of the things that are really important about doing this in a workplace context is that once we have done it and once we can get it done, it would start a whole new dynamic because there's already systems in place in workplaces for managing assets once it has been elevated to something that needs to be managed. So we will do suicide prevention a massive service much, much beyond just work-related suicide by getting suicide in as a workplace issue that needs as a workplace health and safety issue. Exactly, exactly. And and Sarah, you can elaborate on the definition and the struggles with measuring the definition, but I also want you to address why should we bother? Why does it matter to have a definition? Why should we be trying to measure these things? Why do we care? Sure, they're all very important questions. And I think you know, defining it, as Jorgen said, is is complex, because if you define a suicide as, as work-related, it means that something or someone could bear responsibility in the death of that person. So it is, it is complex. However, you know, the complexity argument is used to, you know, stop reform on this and to stop progress on this. And what we're trying to do, it isn't to, you know, point fingers or to assign blame, but to, you know, suicide in the French context, Christophe Dejour, who's the sort of major French expert on work-related suicide, sees it as the tip of an iceberg. If there is a suicide that takes place in the workplace or that is potentially work-related, it really points to more deep-seated and generalised problems across the workplace as a whole. Now, if we don't recognise that suicide, if we don't investigate it, if we don't try to prevent it, that is potentially a dangerous situation because it means that nothing changes that in the aftermath of a suicide, an employer doesn't really need to do anything, that conditions don't need to change, that nothing needs to be looked at. And that means that the risks or the factors that led one person to take his or her own life are still present and still pose a danger to to other employees. And that's precisely what happened in companies, in French companies such as France Telecom, such as Renault, such as the postal services, where there were multiple suicides that weren't recognized and weren't defined and weren't documented, which meant that those circumstances weren't addressed in an open, 
an honest and, and rigorous way. And as you know, as you both know, there are systems in place for defining what what constitutes a potential work related suicide for purposes of investigation. If a suicide takes place in the workplace, there's a likelihood that there could be work-related factors. If the person leaves a note blaming work-related factors, it's, it's likely that work may have played a part. If they're wearing a work uniform, if they're in a work vehicle, if, they're, if they use a work implement. I don't think it is as nebulous as it could be seen as in that there are sort of tangible material factors which can be taken into account in order to precisely not state definitively this suicide is work-related or it isn't, but to trigger an investigation in the interests of, of prevention, in the interests of avoiding further preventable deaths. So I think that's why it's important for me. Yeah. And you dug deep into, you know, the best known case on this where the executives and the workplace were held accountable. Can you just give a short version of that story and how the courts decided that, yes, workplace played a role in these deaths? Can you give a, a Cliff Notes version of the uh, of the France Telecom case study? Sure. So it was in 2009 that the media began speaking about uh, suicides in France Telecom. Between, I think it's 2008 and 2011, there were 69 employee suicides at France Telecom. What was distinct? Just to put that in perspective for people who don't know France Telecom, how many employees were there approximately? It is a very large company. I, I don't know the precise number of employees, but it is the third largest employer in France. So there is, you know, a, a very large. Tens of thousands? Yes, yes. Okay, just to give people a ballpark. It wasn't like a hundred person company and it wasn't like a million person company, but it was a big company. But that's still a yeah. sizable number in a short period of time. I think from memory it was 120,000 and they had to cut the workforce to about 90. Okay, thank you. That's Excellent. from memory. Okay. <laughs> Yes. So the suicides weren't sort of sporadic events. They were they took place at a particular moment in time when the company was undergoing restructuring. So the company was undergoing restructuring. The key aim of restructuring was to cut the costs associated with staff employee salaries. So there was a drive to push employees out of the company. Now, what was distinctive in the France Telecom case was that the workers were public service employees and had protected status. This meant that the company couldn't fire them or make them redundant as they could in, 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 in other countries. And so what we had was this sort of perverse use of psychological tactics and pressures to try to to push employees to leave the company so you know pressurized meetings with members of staff basically employees who were 50, age 50 plus were targeted they would be sent a barrage of emails they would be relocated at a moment's notice to a new city they would be asked to move 300 miles away to move away from their families from their loved ones at, at very short notice. What was discovered in the court case was that these management tactics were indeed perverse and were designed to place the employees under such 
psychological pressure that they would voluntarily leave the company. Now, what happened was that the psychological pressure was such that people, some employees, very tragically took their own lives. What is very interesting in the France Telecom case as well is that they wrote letters that we have that material evidence that lots of suicide notes were written in which workers said, I am doing this because of my job. I'm not doing this because I'm unhappy in my relationship. I'm not doing this because I have problems at home. It's my job that is making me miserable. And so there was that very poignant and and tangible testimony of, of what was going on. And those letters were used in the court case, which concluded in 2019, when six company executives were given prison sentences. And why was it po- this possible in the French case? I think because of the particular legal context in which psychological harassment and bullying is recognised as being illegal. It's not in the UK, for example, bullying isn't an illegal practice. In France, because of the particular nature of the legislation and a 2002 law, this was seen to constitute moral harassment or psychological bullying. So I think the, the laws are much stronger in France around workplace mental health which meant that this could happen in a way that it hasn't happened in 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 other contexts, as far as we're aware. Interesting. Yeah, that's a powerful testimony of what is possible when we hold workplaces accountable. I can tell you this work-related suicide conversation is not really happening at all in the United States. We're still almost entirely embedded in the general consciousness in a mental illness framework around suicide. So we've got some work to do to shift paradigms, but you're setting some good groundwork for us. Go ahead, Jorgen. Yeah, I can just say that the French Telecom case for me had some really interesting parts to it because at the core of it was really what every company was trying to achieve in terms of company culture. When you go to most companies, they have the vision statement up on the wall. They do everything they can to involve their workforce in the mission of the business and the, the the value of the business and so on to get better workers and more committed workers. The problem that French Telecom had was the workers were too committed to the company. They were too committed to the social functions they had of providing telecommunication services. So they could not get into this for-profit mindset. They were going from a public organization to a private organization. And I, I remember uh, one of the, the, the things one of the senior managers was interviewed as part of some sociology work that was done around it. And he said his job was to create corporate amnesia, was to create a corporate amnesia about that sort of public service mentality in the company. And that was a change. And that was a change that workers found so difficult was because they were really committed to the social purpose of their work. And another quite unfortunate thing, if I remember right, and correct me if I'm wrong, Sarah, but the, the CEO of the company at a board meeting actually said, I'll make them leave, if not through the door, then through the window. And it just mm. turned out to be so, so chillingly little. You know, as you, I didn't know that part of the story, but that makes even more sense to me on why suicide was the outcome and not, say, lawsuits or people, you know, setting fire to the place or whatever, because if they were so committed as servants to this mission, and then all of a sudden this is happening, that's like a part of their essence 
that has been demolished. Yeah. It just makes so sad. It hit it at hit it at a much deeper level than the disruption of having to move or the humiliation of doing something that was not their skill set. This was crushing them on who they were. Oh, powerful. I didn't know that part. Well, in the remainder of the time we have, and again, this is going to be an ongoing conversation that we're going to be have over several podcasts. We just wanted to introduce our listeners to this little bit of a paradigm shift in thinking about workplace suicide prevention. I wanted to get just a little teaser from each of you on what's been happening. Since we don't have a lot happening in the United States yet on this topic, we're all looking at Australia, the UK, and to some levels, uh, Canada on, you know, what's possible when we open the door to this conversation. So, Jordan, let's start with you. What, what's happening in Australia around the conversation, at least, or are people putting parts of this puzzle together to highlight what we can do about work-related suicides? I think it's happening. I think that uh, we had a long period of time where we were spinning wheels around the yoga and fruit bowl type approach to workplace <laughs> mental health, which was all about fixing the workers. There's been a number of things happening, and it's happening slowly. And, and this is where it's important to get footholds where you can get footholds and build from there. If this gets up in the UK, gets up in Australia, it will flow through because that's how workplace health and safety works. It works most of the places in the world, workplace health and safety works around the concept of a duty of care and preventable what is reasonably foreseeable, the old torts type principles at different levels with different levels of, of, of legislative overlay. So getting it up in certain places would make a difference. In Australia, there were some, some quite well-known cases where uh, particularly a girl called Brody worked in a cafe and was harassed in all different ways by her boss in a very, very direct way and her co-workers. And there was there was no no management action to mitigate it. And Brody eventually took her own life. And the family had a campaign in Victoria and it led to what they call Brody's Law, which deals with workplace harassment. So it actually starts saying, again, the man, failure to manage the psychosocial work environment, and particularly around harassment first and foremost, was an offence. That has slowly been expanded upon. So the Australian model rule recently specifically included the provision that talked that psychosocial injuries were similar to physical injuries and need to be managed the same way. So that makes it quite clear. There's a very clear responsibility on businesses around the psychosocial injuries. And most workplaces now have, most jurisdictions in Australia now have codes of practice around managing psychosocial hazards in the workplace. And I know mostly about Queensland, but one of the things we did in Queensland, we campaigned quite hard to have suicide included in the code of practice as one of the outcomes. Like it's it's difficult, it's suicide is difficult in terms because we're actually looking at the hazard, we're not looking at the outcome. We're saying you need to manage the hazard. But getting it flagged that when you don't manage the hazard, then sometimes people die. And, and that's an important connection to be made. So that's that. So that that is happening. I just want to say, in workplace, we do have a little bit of an in, issue in, in suicide prevention. We often try to sort of distinguish ourselves in terms of the mental health argument, saying that that it, it, it suicide is a deliberate act, and a deliberate act in some ways cut across some of the things we normally do in workplace health and safety, where deliberate acts are sort of a little bit excluded in some areas. So these are some of the hurdles we have to just grasp with this. But but things are happening. So the time is actually right to make the connection really strong. And if we make the connection really strong, it would have flow-on effects for a whole heap of other places as well. I think the whole free will choice, deliberate act thing, you know, 
can be debatable about, mm-hmm. you know, rather than succumbing or some other type of decision making mm-hmm. pathway. But yeah, that's got to be a tough one. But we'll we'll get there. What did you say? Just because it's difficult doesn't mean it can't be done. Exactly. <laughs> and Sarah, what are you seeing in terms of, you know, initial steps in the UK or in France based on some of these uh, ideas on work-related suicide? Yes. So in the UK, we have been, you know, fighting on on this question for for years and years and years. And and colleagues in in Hazards, who I work with, Hazards is a trade union movement, have been engaged in, in, you know, campaigning on this for much longer than I have. We are making progress. We had a breakthrough recently on the 19th of December that the health and safety executive, which is responsible for defining the regulations around health and safety across the whole of the UK, they really have been very resistant on this whole question for years and years and years. We've sent them petitions, we've sent them letters, we've published articles. They they, they, they just don't want to know. They've really, up until now, shut down the conversation. And then the pressure has been mounting, and I think it's through through our work and, and through our campaigning. And then on the 19th of December, we had Hilda Palmer, who's part of the Hazards campaign, and myself had a meeting with the CEO of the Health and Safety Executive to talk about work-related suicide. And that was a very good meeting. And look, the we the areas where we have common ground is that finally they agree that it is absurd to recognize work-related stress on the one hand and on the other to refuse to recognize suicide as a potential work-related incident. They recognize that. Hooray. (laughs) The other point of common ground is that we need to document this, that we need to collect data. Again, this position is, is, is real progress because up until now they have said no why would we document this? Why would we need data on on what's going on? The real point of difference is that they don't want to do it through the usual health and safety framework. So all work-related fatalities are reported through a health and safety process. They don't want to do that with suicide. They want to sort of push it out and they want to gather data on work-related suicides through the coroners. So that's where we stand at the moment. We say, look, why would suicide be treated differently to another, to any other work-related fatality if the indicators are there? Why do we want to exclude it from a health and safety framework and exclude, exclude it from investigation, from prevention measures, But that is where we are at present. So we have recognition of the phenomenon. We have recognition of the need to collect data, but we are at odds about whether that should be done within a health and safety framework or by coroners. The problem with doing it with coroners is that, again, it is, you know, it is taken outside the workplace and is often treated as an individual mental health incident rather than as a workplace incident. But hey, look, small steps. They said they would meet us again in two months. So we, you know, we will keep, we're like terriers. We will keep snapping (laughs) at their heels until we, we, we get there. 
Excellent. Well, in closing, and again, we're going to have lots more conversations about this very important topic, bringing in all kinds of folks from our community and others in a sentence or maybe two. What do you think are the most important next steps, both globally and where you are? And then who else do we need to invite into this conversation to help us figure out the solutions? And I'll start. I I think in, in the United States, anyways, we're nowhere near where you are. We need to really expand this conversation in our workplaces, but also in our in our labor groups, in our professional associations, expand this conversation in our mental health communities, because they're not really addressing this at all either. They're kind of reinforcing the singular narrative of mental health being the only contributor. So I'm just so grateful for all of you for opening a door of what's possible for us that haven't really started. And I would say the second part of my closing question for you is that who else needs to be at the table? And I would say more people with lived experience, either lost survivors who believe their loved one was lost due to workplace factors or people who survived a suicide attempt during your miss and you know, have a story to tell about if this was changed, I wouldn't have had to suffer so much. So Jorgen, how about you? What are like the first important next steps? And then who else needs to be at the table? I think it's really important that we get to a place where there's a level of consensus around what a workplace suicide might look like in terms of on the outside. So we actually start getting a trigger for further investigation. I don't know that I totally agree with you with the fact that nothing is happening in the US, Sally, because <laughs> I just feel uh, like we're so behind all the time. <laughs> I'm reading with interest there was a there was a report by the American Bureau of Labor Statistics not so long ago that looked at work-related suicides. And I think it was six and a half percent of all death, all workplace-related death were suicides in the US, which made the quite significant. Factor. But they're not talking about it as well. But they're not they're not investigating it. They're not investigating right. And they're not thinking about that, it was about that. Yes. contributing. They're not, they're not there's some 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 unique things in your legislation that means it doesn't go any further than just the interest. But there is actually like at least some of the stuff that, that Sarah was talking about is at least happening in some states, which is a good start. So I think it's diff- important we don't beat each other or ourselves <laughs> up. <laughs> that we that we also recognize the good stuff that's happening. But I think I think I think that the thing where we really need to go is we really need to find out what does it look like, what's a trigger, and then we need to create a bit of an alliance around that because this is where good suicidology meets politics. And those two mm-hmm. things have to come together if things are going to change. Mm-hmm. And that is why I get so excited with our little calls that we're having so far that we're going to be expanding soon. It's we're good research and Good policy meets up with great advocacy and oh, like you just see what's possible if we can really expand this conversation globally. Sarah, how about you? What are you thinking are the most important next steps and who else do we need to have at the table? Well, this conversation is is precisely an example of where we need to go. It's this international discussion, which is which is such I, I have found can be such a powerful tool. Because, you know, if you bring together researchers, practitioners from different places who bring their experience of what is going on in their country, and we look at that and we find examples of best practice, but we also use it to shine. This is this is was a key component of what we did in the UK. We used international practice to shine a spotlight on the UK and say, right, you are arguing that suicide is an individual mental health problem. How come it's only an individual mental health problem in the UK, whereas in Japan, in France, in Belgium, in all these other countries, it's considered as an urgent 
public health issue. Why why is it only an individual mental health issue in the UK? So by pointing up the other example that we use, Sally, is, you know what? In the US, they've been collecting data on work-related suicides since 1992. Why is it such a problem for, for, for you? Why, you know, it's considered important. It's considered an indicator of health and safety in the workplace. So those examples can be a very powerful tool, a discursive tool in lobbying within our own countries. And the more intelligence we gather, the more researchers we bring in, the more powerful we become in lobbying with our own within our own national context and when within international organizations. Excellent. So in closing to all the listeners, people with lived experience, people who have histories on advocating, advocacy, activism, and organizing, our global community partners that are doing incredible research and policy building and practitioners. We need you. Come join us. More to come. Again, thank you both for this incredible conversation. Thank you, International Association of Suicide Prevention, for hosting us. And thank you, all of you out there listening and doing great work in this space. Come catch our next episode. There's more to come. Take care. Bye.